My name is Carlos, and I am uh, one of the pastors here at Reality. And if this is your first time um, here, I want to remind you, and I want to welcome you, and I want to say, hey, wherever you are on your journey of faith, I want you to know this. Um, you are, um, you're in a place where you can process your faith and ask the difficult questions about Christianity. Wherever you are, if you've been a Christian for a really long time and, you know, you're just on fire for the Lord. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. Let me hear you if that's you. Amazing. About 10% of the room is on fire for Jesus. I am encouraged. No, no. No, listen. I'm, I'm serious. Um, if you're here, you're on fire. Praise God. If you're here, you just kind of barely made it by the skin of your teeth. You're like, I had to go to church today. I'm glad you're here, and I believe that God has a word for you from the scriptures. Here it is. Acts 2. Uh, this is a classic text in Christianity, and today what we're looking at is we're looking at the first sermon, the first message that was ever preached uh, in a church. How cool is that? The first sermon. I'm going to read this entire sermon to you, and then I'm going to preach a sermon about the sermon uh, that was preached in Acts uh, chapter 2. So um, if you don't have a Bible and you're sort of exploring Christianity uh, we would love to give you one at the end of the service because we want you to check out the claims of Jesus for yourself. And one of the ways you do that is by exploring what the Bible says. And you can come up and ask questions and do whatever you want. to. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, um, starting in verse 14. This is what Luke writes in the book of Acts. Look at this. Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. Can you imagine how cool that is? Hey, they're not, it's like, I know this is Miami, but these people are not drunk. It's nine. It's nine in the morning. Because what's happened, the Spirit of God has been manifested in their midst for the very first time, and they're seeing signs and wonders. And here's what happens on the contrary. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, verse 17. And it will be in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my Spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22, listen to this. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. 
You have revealed the paths of life to me, and you will find me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. Follow him. Look, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has, exalt, he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, my, until I make your enemies a footstool. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you. In the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is the word of the Lord. It was the scholar Leslie Newbegin who once wrote the following, he said this, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? Stories are how we find our place in the world, how we make sense of it, and whether or not you realize it, all of us have to answer this question. What story is big enough that I can be a part of? And how does that story make sense of who I am and what my purpose is in this life? I want you to think about it. Every human being right now is part of a particular story. For instance, some people have a story of humanity that goes something like this. The narrative will say, hey, human beings are actually very good. They're really good people. And if we just get educated enough, and if we study conflict resolution, and we work really hard, then societies will be able to come up with an idea of human flourishing in the future. Okay? This is one narrative that is very present in our cultural moment. Another narrative uh, will go something more like this. You know what? Human beings, they're really selfish. And actually, it's all about power. Life is about power. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to study. We're going to have a career. We're going to have a vocation. We're going to have a particular social status so that we can achieve power, so that then we can take care of ourselves, of our families, and so that we can work toward the flourishing of people through the means of attaining power. Does that make sense? You following me? Yes. 
Here's another narrative. Another narrative is, hey, you know what? Um, I don't really care whether or not human beings are good or bad because life ultimately is about pleasure. It's about hedonism. And so what you do is you're going to work toward having individual freedom. So your pursuit of vocation, of your career, of social status, all of that is in pursuit of individual freedom so that you can assert your will in the world and at the end of the day could express that kind of freedom through experiences and through hedonism. Those are three different kinds of stories that human beings find themselves in. The problem, of course, with that is that, number one, if you're here and you believe that human beings are essentially naturally wired and good, then I think that history will have a problem with you. I think it's a verifiable, um, I think it's pretty verifiable, historically speaking, whether or not you're a believer in Jesus that human beings do pretty messed up things. And that part of the reason we find ourselves in the condition that we're in in the world is because of what's going on in the human heart. Does that make sense? So that's one problem with that narrative. The uh, issue with the second kind of narrative where, hey, you know what? We do believe that human beings essentially are, you know, have, there's evil and there's selfishness are inherently when push, to, when push comes to shove, they're gonna try to survive and they will try to assert themselves with power. Well, the issue with that, with pursuing power in your life is that maybe you've heard this old quote, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We know what happens when human beings experience a lot of power. So I don't think that story is very satisfying to us. And then finally, if your life is ultimately about the pursuit of individual freedom and pleasure, I mean, there's nothing wrong with pursuing, with pursuing, I was like, Acts 2, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, something's happening. No. There's nothing wrong with pursuing pleasure as long as it's guided, I believe, in the way that the Lord designed us. But we've all seen what happens when human beings come undone because of their endless pursuit of hedonism, what happens to families, what happens to people. So we all have to live in a particular kind of story. What story is that? The Christian claim, the claim of Christ is that the story that you and I are meant to live is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton, that famous writer, here's what he says. He says that the gospel is the key that unlocks reality for us, that we're able to actually see who we are and what, who God is and why we were created and what our purpose is, and then we can move forward as a result. That the gospel is this story that God has created that is actually better for you and also for me. The question then is, what do we mean when we actually say the good news? And what is that better story um, that we're actually talking about? Because maybe you're here. How many of you have heard the word gospel? Yes, of course. But then when I ask the same question, what is the gospel? Oftentimes I'll get different answers. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? What is the story that we're a part of? You can define it in a sentence. You can say, Jesus in my place. You can say Jesus came, was buried, died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, ascended to the throne, established his kingdom, and we get to walk in that purpose. And those would be really good news. But guess what? You can also write a book about it. What is this grand story that we're a part of? The more that you dive into the story, the more that you will see its wonder. That's part of my goal in this series as we look at the sermons of Acts and the stories 
of Acts is that if I say the gospel to you, you won't just be like, man, I've heard that a lot already. The familiarity of it just kind of can bore you. No, I want us to dive deeper into the story. I want you to walk away over the next four weeks with a sense of awe and wonder about what God has done in the world because you and I need to find ourselves in that story. And you'll find Jesus and you'll find God in this particular story. Look, I have three points for you today. Essentially, what, what kind of story is the gospel? It's a story. It's a story of promise. It's a story of power. And it's a personal story. It's a story of promise. It's a story of power. And it's a personal story. Look. Um, look at what's happening here in Acts chapter 2 in this first sermon um, of the church. Anybody ever um, remember the first time they spoke uh, in public? Yeah? You remember that? Um, anybody ever given a sermon here before? Yeah? Trying to recruit some people here? No? Yeah? Okay, cool. Check this out. Uh, you remember that, what was it like, the sweaty palms? Right? Or the movement like this when you're speaking and you have no idea what's happening? You know, in public, like communication class, whatever? Um, I remember my first sermon. I was about 15 or 16 years old. I was going through some sort of existential uh, face in life. I had just read a book called JB by Archibald MacLeish. Uh, it was a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. It was a story about Job. So imagine my first sermon at 15 or 16 was about the book of Job. This was a mistake. <laughs> if you know anything about the book of Job, you better do your homework. And I was in over my head. I started preaching on the book of Job. I realized I didn't know what I was doing. I had to, quote unquote, borrow some information from an older pastor that helped me. I thought I had a lot of content. And then, of course, 15 minutes into the sermon, I was done. <laughs> and I prayed. And praise God, I grew up in a charismatic church because guess what happens afterwards? And I want to I have this be the kind of culture that we have in reality. I had some of those church mothers, you know, they came to me and they're like, God is calling you to preach, you know? <laughs> it was only 15 minutes, but God, you know? <laughs> like, it was a culture of affirmation. And, and may the Lord do that here, amen? May the, Lord, may, may the Lord form us into a kind of people that actually call out the giftings that we have in one another. Uh, we want to see that here at reality. But anyways, here's what happens here. The first sermon this dude preaches, 3,000 people come to know Jesus. If you've ever spoken before, you know this was a miracle. I'm like, this dude's first sermon, and this is what happens? The Holy Spirit is at work in an incredible way. And you have to think about the person who's given the sermon. It was a man by the name of Peter. And, and who was Peter? He, Peter was like the, the Enneagram 8 of the scriptures, okay? Don't email me about the Enneagram I know. Anyways, listen, he was, he was the first one who took a step forward, right, um, in the Gospels. He was the first one to walk on water, for instance. He was the first one to put his foot in his mouth of the disciples, you know. He was one of those, you know, Hispanics say, no tiene pelo en la lengua. That was Peter. He doesn't have any hairs in his tongue. Sounds weird in English, but um, that's who Peter was. Peter was the first one also to take out the sword. And he cut off this Roman soldier's ear. And Peter was also the first one to say, Jesus, we're never going to betray you. But then what happens? His pride gets in the way. 
and he ends up betraying Jesus in the most spectacular fashion in the Gospels. But isn't it interesting then that five weeks later, five weeks later after that betrayal, the ris- he has an encounter with God. He is forgiven from that moment, and here he is preaching the first sermon of the church. I want you to know that that's good news for you and for me. Because Peter, if you put yourself in his shoes, probably thought that his best days of ministry were done. He probably thought, you know what, I'm hanging out with Jesus, and I saw him feed thousands of people. I mean, I got to walk on water, okay? I got to see him calm the storms. My best days of ministry are done, especially after the sin that he had committed before the Lord. But what you discover in this story, actually, is that Peter didn't know that his best days of ministry weren't behind him. They were ahead of him. They were in front of him because of the mercy and the grace and the plan and the purpose that God has in his life. It was a story that he's getting caught up in, the story of God, which is a story of promise. And the good news for you and for me Especially if you've grown up in the church and at some point you had some sort of ministry or a call that God had in your life and you messed up and you blew it or you sinned or something happened to you, the good news is that your best days of ministry don't have to be behind you. They could be ahead of you. That God can still use you because he loves taking things that have been broken and then redeemed them and he uses them for his glory. Amen? This is what... Peter is getting caught up, and I haven't even gotten to the sermon, guys. Listen, we're going to be here till 2 today, okay? God bless you, man. I'm kidding, no. Listen, look at what he says then. He quotes the prophet Joel from the Old Testament in chapter 2. He says, and it will be in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. I want you to actually stop for a moment there. He's explaining why people are speaking in different languages and why this manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the upper room where 120 people are there. It says in the scriptures earlier that tongues like flames of fire are resting in people's heads and they began to speak in every different language. And at this time in Jerusalem, it's the festival of weeks, Jews from all Different kinds of nations are gathered for three festivals per year. This is one of those times. And so they're hearing their native language mysteriously being spoken by other people. And so Peter says this is the fulfillment of this particular scripture. You follow me? It's the fulfillment of what you've read in the past in the book of Joel. He says, it will be in the last day, says God. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's what that means. The promise that was foretold by Joel is coming to pass. It's true. It is before you. It is real. It's happening right now. People of Israel, listen. The story is true. Number two, 
the last days have dawned. In other words, Jesus Christ has ascended into the heavens. He has poured out his spirit. And now we're living in the age where we're waiting for the return of the king to make everything right. And then finally, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what essentially Peter is letting us know out of Joel chapter 2. And I want you to think about not only what he's saying, but what he's doing with what he's saying. I don't want you to miss this. This is so key. Peter is appealing to their memory. He's appealing to their memory. He's talking to Jewish people that know exactly what Joel is talking about, and he's helping them make sense of the scriptures. You follow me? So he's telling them, hey, you thought you understood the scripture, but now I'm actually helping you understand it in light of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the spirit. Later on, he's going to quote Psalm 16, which talks about David. And he's going to say, the poem in the Psalm that David wrote doesn't make sense because David actually dies. David says, you will not let your holy one see decay. That's the quote in Acts chapter 2. And what Peter is saying is that Psalm and who David was writing about is actually Jesus Christ. All of those years before, this was a promise of fulfillment. And so he's reasoning with them. He's engaging their mind. He's engaging their memory. And praise God, by the way, that God is not an anti-intellectual God. Amen? He engages their mind. Think about it. He's engaging their reasoning. And they're coming to know Jesus through the power of the Spirit, but he's also engaging them with reason. Part of the wonder of the story of the gospel that I want us to get in this series is that Christianity and the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it is the A through Z. It's not the ABCs of Christianity, it is the A through Z. This is a really famous quote, by the way. In other words, when the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, they're reading scripture in light of Jesus Christ. They're looking at the Old Testament and they're applying it to what they have seen now because of the ascension of Jesus. Does that make sense? You're reading the Bible within the story of redemption. This is what a famous pastor by the name of Tim Keller, this is what he says. He says, when, for instance, in the New Testament, when Paul calls Adam the first Adam and Jesus the last Adam, here's what he's saying. The first Adam failed in the garden and that's why we find ourselves in the condition of sin that we find ourselves in. But then the last Adam, the true and better Adam was Jesus Christ who in the garden of Gethsemane was able to withstand the temptation and actually go to the cross so that we could have peace with God. Do you see? Do you see the application of Jesus there between the first Adam and the last Adam? You could say no and I'll explain it again. Okay. You following me? Check this out. When Peter mentions David here, think about his life. Think about David. David was the king of Israel who slayed the giant Goliath, and his victory was applied to the whole nation of Israel. But Jesus is the true and better Adam who slayed the giants of sin and death, and he was victorious through the resurrection, and that victory is applied to those who believe in him. Amen? Do you see it? In the Old Testament, there's this concept of the Lamb of God that provides atonement for our sins, a spotless Lamb of God. In the New Testament, 
in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? Who takes away the sins of the world. If there was anybody who was ever innocent, who was ever spotless, who was ever blameless, it was Jesus. He's the true and better ultimate Lamb of God who takes away and who atones for our sins through the cross of Christ. Do you see it? Do you see how wonderful this is? The connections between the Old and the New Testament. We're caught up in a part, in a story of promise. This is part of the story of the gospel. It's a story of promises. And the promise here that matters for you and me is that you and me can experience the power of the Spirit of God by calling on the name of the Lord. Have you come to the Lord that way? I don't just mean intellectually that you believe that he could be God, but have you taken him up on this promise that if you call on his name, you too will be saved? This is part of what it means to get caught up in the promises of God. He says, man, listen, if you trust me, I will use you. I will redeem you. This is the story of the promise. Do you see the wonder in it? It's a story of promise, but number two, it's a story of power. Look at verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and to kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Just yesterday, I had the opportunity to go to a funeral and to give a brief message to a family here in our city. And funerals have a way of helping us focus on what matters most in life, don't they? If you've ever been to a funeral, you, <clears throat> you find people who are disoriented by what's taken place, and they don't have the words to say. They're simply there to be able to be present with other people. Then you see other people who are in the midst of tears, reflecting on the loss that they've just experienced. Then you see, oftentimes, the faces of the family members that are just numb because every tear has already fallen from their face. And in these moments, it gives them a chance to reflect on the life of the person and then on their death, on that separation. And I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. When you look at Scripture, like, you begin to realize that death is not the way that God created us to be. You understand? We often say, ah, oh, man, just biologically, like, death is natural. We know we're all going to die. But that's not how God created us. He put eternity in our hearts. There's something so painful about death, which is why you and I, in the story of humanity, we need power. We need power. Central to Christianity is the question, did Jesus rise from the grave? What makes us Christians is the fact that Jesus Christ changed the world upside down 2,000 years ago. When he died, was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. That's what Peter's preaching about here in the first sermon. In other words, he validates God's deity by showing you the evidence of his resurrection. 
He's saying, you need to see this. You saw his miracles. You know what he was capable of. And then he rose again on the third day. And because of that, he's God. But the good news for you and me is that, especially if you're thinking about the gospel and what that means for us, what that means in our story is that you too, when you trust in Christ, you have a promise. And the promise is that you too will one day rise again. You too have a promise of resurrection. And you and I need that promise. Do you know why? Because this world is painful. Because there's a lot of hurt. There are a lot of tears that you and I will shed in our lifetime. There are a lot of wrongs that we will not see righted. There are a lot of injustices that we won't see made right. But in the story of the gospel, what happens is you and I discover that Jesus one day is going to make this right. And the way we know that is because he was resurrected on that third day. In one of the most epic lines in the New Testament, Peter writes, death could not hold him down. You know? That's how incredible the power of God is, the power that you and me have access to. You and I need a story that has a promise and a hope, not based on fiction, but on history. Do you see it? If you're here, and you're exploring Christianity, you can look up the evidences of the resurrection. And at least for me, this became one of the key issues that bolstered my faith and that helped me to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord um, and Savior. There's so much disappointment in terms of what we live in here on this side of heaven. And maybe you see, you know, maybe you're sitting there and part of your question is, you know what, I hear you. I hear you saying that the story of Jesus is a story of power, but what do I do? when I need to see God's power and I didn't see it in my life, where he didn't answer that prayer, when I trusted in him and he didn't come through. And my answer to you would be, man, quite honestly, I don't know. I don't know, but I know this. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And if he didn't make it right on this side of heaven, he's gonna make it right in the future that you can trust in his plan and his promises because at some point all of us can also point to the goodness and the power of God on different areas of your life. So many of us can stand up right now and share a moment when Jesus met us in power and in goodness and in beauty and in truth and we hang on to those promises by faith, amen? Because he rose from the grave. Have you experienced this power? The gospel's a story of promise, a story of power, but then it's a personal story. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Here's another picture of how you become a Christian in the Bible. <clears throat> it says here that you are cut to the heart. When people heard about the gospel, they were pierced 
in their heart. And here's why. Number one, they realized they were wrong about Jesus. They were wrong about him. You see, if you look at that particular time and you read literature about the ancient world in the first century, then you'll know that many people thought that Jesus, they wanted him to be a prophet of their religion, of Judaism. Other people wanted him to be a political messiah that would deliver them from the hands of the Roman oppression. Other people were just cynical. One of the most um, impactful verses in this whole story is how in the midst of a move of God, there were people who just sneered, who were cynical. You want to miss out on a move of God? Cultivate your cynicism. You want to miss out on the blessing of God and the movement of his spirit? Cultivate cynicism. But if you want to experience him, we cultivate a heart of wonder. Right? So they were wrong about Jesus. They, and even today in our cultural moment, who do we want Jesus to be? We want sometimes Jesus to be a kind teacher, a moral and religious expert. We want him to be one way to explore um, faith. We want to pacify Jesus who can provide a set of ethics for the West. But what does Peter say in this resurrection account? What does Peter say in this sermon? He, he says that we need to call on Jesus as Lord. In other words, he is in charge of our lives, that he is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is exclusive. He is the only way, the under name under heaven by which we can be saved. At that moment, what happens is the message for the people that were cut to the heart goes from being something out there, something abstract, something that was religious to something that became personal. I messed up. I didn't know who Jesus was. I thought he was a cool kind of story, but no, Jesus is different. He shattered my expectations. Do you see it became personal to them. They were cut to the heart because now they realized that Jesus was not who they thought that he was. And then second, they were cut to the heart because they realized that they were responsible for the death of Jesus. They were responsible. A couple of different times in this text, Peter says, you killed him. Peter, just weeks before, he denies the Messiah right before the crucifixion. Three times, he was responsible. And those who were listening to Peter came to the same conclusion. We did this. It was us who put Jesus on the cross. That's why the Bible says that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. You will begin to be cut in your heart when you realize that when we sin, we're not just breaking God's laws, we're breaking God's heart. Do you see that difference in your life? When you're, I remember walking uh, earlier, I grew up in church, so I was like desensitized by the message of the gospel a lot of times, you know? I mean, my mom, on the way to school, dude, she's preaching the gospel, dude. on the way back to school. She's telling me about Jesus. I was that rowdy kid in Sunday school, dude, that I would joke around, do all sorts of weird things at church because, of course, I knew the answer. Boom, who did this? Wow, Abraham, boom. You know, and I, I knew, I knew the answer. I knew about God, but I didn't really know him. I had never been cut to the heart until one day I realized that my sin actually put Jesus on the cross and that he died for me and that I didn't just break his law, I broke his heart. Do you see? This is how you are cut to the heart. And I love what they said here in the sermon. They're so honest. And maybe you ask yourself the same question today. You're like, what should we do? What should we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. How do we respond to the story of Jesus? The first response here, of course, is a response of repentance. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It actually deals with your mind. It's changing your mind. You're changing to a different direction. Instead of walking toward your sin and toward you being the owner of your life, you walk away from your sin and towards God. So they repented. They repented. They changed their mind about who God was, and they came to him. They went from denial to surrender. Number two, it says here, be baptized. So they took a step of obedience. And what is baptism? Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Baptism doesn't save us. It is a symbol in the scriptures. In the book of Acts, I want to share this with you. We see 27 baptisms, and they always take place after somebody comes to know Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge you. Maybe today some of us haven't taken that step of obedience because of perhaps a particular uh, traditionalism that we have, a particular fear of religiosity. Maybe you have a a particular kinds of excuses and you just kind of want to put it off. And I want to encourage you, listen, I want you to process this. I want you to think about it. But we know of no New Testament believer that has not been baptized except one dude who was hanging on a cross right next to Jesus, the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to get baptized, okay? Everyone else did. I want to encourage you to take a step of obedience. On the other side of your obedience generally is a sense of blessing from the Lord. And if you've never been baptized, you have questions about that, I want to encourage you to take that step of obedience with the Lord. You repent. How do we respond to the message of the gospel when we're cut to the heart? We repent. We change our mind. We begin to obey. And then finally, listen, you receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. How do you receive the forgiveness of Jesus for your sin and the Holy Spirit? How do you do it? Somebody tell me. You pray. You call on the name of the Lord. It's simple. It's not a magic trick. The scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here, I have a question for you. If you've never made this decision, what's stopping you from doing that? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord? He promises that if you call on him, he will fill you with the spirit and he will forgive you of your sin. Don't you want that? Jesus invites us all to be a part of that story. And I want to give you an opportunity in just a moment to say that. But I want to close with this. Because maybe you're here and you've been following Jesus and you've been kind of numb to the gospel a little bit, to the story. And you're still trying to find your place in how this matters on a Monday morning for you when you go back to work. I'm reminding of a story by a Chilean uh, writer by the name of Isabel Allende. You ever heard of her? She wrote a book called Evaluna. I've shared the story with you before, but in this novel, uh, there is a woman who creates stories. It's a fiction novel. It's a woman who creates stories, and that's her vocation. Her vocation is literally to make up stories about people. She makes up their past, their future, and all this weird, cool, fictional stuff, right? Well, she's in the middle of a plaza, and she encounters a soldier who's coming off of war, and he's been beaten down, and he comes 
up to her and he says, hey, would you please create a past for me? I'm so beaten down that I have forgotten who I am. I don't even remember what my mother's name is. Compelled by the pain of the soldier, this woman begins to create a past for him overnight. And she begins to fill him with memories of who he is. So that in the morning when he wakes up, he finally remembers who he is and he's able to move forward in the world. What happens to you and to me in the gospel is that every time we tell it to ourselves, here's what's happening. In the midst of the week, we can encounter a lot of personal battles that make us forget who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. But when we hear the gospel, here's what happens. We are reminded of our identity. We are reminded that we are part of a story of promise. We are reminded that we have power from the Holy Spirit and that God is a personal God. And we'll remember that we are able to move forward in faith in our lives. Amen.